let's stand all over the house this evening. Let's sing this hymn of the church, He Abides. Will I rejoice in night and day as I walk the way for the hand of God in all my life I see. And the reason of my bliss is the secret all is this, that the Comforter abides with me.
Let's come back together and let's continue to worship the Lord tonight. I saw Satan in fall like I did. I saw darkness run for cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over my name. Together, sons and daughters, all with blood and washing water. Sing the praises of the Spirit, Son and Father. Our God will finish what He started. Oh, our God will finish what He started. This is my testimony. I'm blessed my story, I testify, my Jesus Christ the righteous, I justify, this is my testimony, this is my testimony, I'm not dead, you're not done, greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe I'm not dead, you're not done. 
tonight Lord we love you we know God that you truly are all we need Lord we felt your presence in this house this morning and God there is such a sweet spirit in this house tonight 
Lord, we know that it is your word, God, that accomplishes the task it is sent to do. Father, as we get ready to break the bread of life, God, I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to maintain this atmosphere of worship. God, let it not be just where we're getting ready to tune out, Lord, for the next few moments to hear your word. But, God, we still would feel your presence in this house tonight. Every note that's been played, every song sung, every prayer offered, God, I pray, God, it would have been a sweet aroma to your nostrils as an incense of worship. Father, everything that we say and do, Lord, we give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. The people of God together said amen. have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be there in chapter number 1. 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 1. We're going to start in verse number 5 there, and we will drop down all the way to verse number 10. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and then we'll start in verse 5 and drop down through, and read through, I'm sorry, and read through verse number 10 there as you're turning there let me just make mention to you again don't forget all of the stuff coming up this weekend uh, with all of the various things and um, that we have going on I pray that uh, you are ready to celebrate um, Christmas season for all those that have worked so diligently to get the sanctuary turned and changed and twisted uh, for us to have this ready for uh, Christmas, I appreciate all of that and um, as well. First Thessalonians chapter number five, or chapter number one, I'm sorry, and begin reading in verse five. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse number five. Here's what the word of the Lord says. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in assurance. And you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, for your side. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that when you became examples to all, notice what he says, so that you could become examples to all. In Macedonia, in Cassia, we believe. For from you the word of God has sounded forth. And only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us for what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'm going to ask Brother Randy if he would pray over the reading of God's Word tonight. Amen. 
Amen. I want to talk to you tonight. It won't be on your screen. Um, apparently, they were having some computer malfunctions with getting it up there. I know uh, we were having some trouble this morning with just some uh, connectivity issues and things like that. But I want to talk to you tonight on the idea or the concept of good gospel preaching. Now, when I say that, I say that not in terms of, of using that as a play on words. I know some people would use gospel preaching. That's what you hear people say, oh, you know, I'll, I go to a church, they have good gospel preaching. And, and I'm not talking specifically about the way they uh, would use that terminology as much as I'm talking about the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel literally means good news. Since receiving good news is one of life's most delightful experiences, how especially meaningful and joyful is it to get good news from God? Think about it. It's one thing to get good news, uh, but it's, it's another thing to get really good news. If you go out to the mailbox tomorrow, and you open up the mailbox, and in there, there's a check for $20, because somebody said they just felt like sending you a little gift of piece of money in the mail, you may say, that's a pretty good day. You go out there later that afternoon, Brother James, and you draw out and you get out of that mailbox another letter, and that letter's got $1,000 in it. That's really good news. That's good news. And the reality of it is we all like good news. We like things of good news. We like to hear good reports. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things as parents we love to do or we love is when our children come home with their progress reports, so they come home with their report cards, and when they get those report cards, they have, if you will, good grades. And we reward that. We say, hey, if you get all A's and B's, I'll take you to the mall, or I'll take you to, you know, buy some new clothes or some new shoes or, or whatever it may be. And we love that. We enjoy that. We love celebrating that. We love doing that. But what if they get a bad grade? What if they don't follow the rules? Or what if you get that phone call from the teacher with the not-so-good news? Hey, I just wanted to call you and let you know that, you know, Little Jimmy was playing on the playground, and he was playing flag football. And they were playing flag football, and little Jimmy tripped uh, over the monkey bars section, uh, and he fell off and, and playing football, ran into a pole. He's got a concussion. He's also got a broken wrist. But don't worry. The school's insurance will cover it. While the school's insurance may be good news, you were not getting the not-so-good news of little Johnny's concussion and broken hand or broken wrist or whatever it may be. The reality of it is, is that sometimes in life we get really good news, and sometimes in life we don't get so good news, if you will. And the reality of it is, one thing I love about God's Word is that even when it is difficult to process and to understand and to dissect and to, uh, if you will, take in, the Bible still is full of good news. It still gives us hope. It still gives us joy for the journey. It still helps us along life's way. You see, the good news is a message that has been set forth in the New Testament and has been provided for sinful man to have a way of hope and, a salva and salvation through Jesus Christ. It is not based on human merit, but on grace and mercy. It is important to note that the gospel of Christ that the great commission that Jesus gave was centered on sharing this message to the world. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that good news, why Jesus came, the Great Commission centers on that idea to go into all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you. The good news is we have to tell it to the world. In the Christmas season, we are so famous for singing songs like, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Over the Hills, and Everywhere. It's a catchy tune. It's a catchy uh, song, whether you sing it in an upbeat way, whether you sing it in a jazz way, whether you sing it in whatever way. The idea behind it is the excitement of going and telling the good news, the gospel. It shouldn't be, as I said this morning, just about Thanksgiving. The same could be said about Christmas. The wonder and the joy of Christmas should not just be something we celebrate in December, but the wonder of Christ's birth, the miraculous uh, being and conception and the, the reason why He came. We can celebrate Christmas in June and July because it still is the same gospel. It still is the same reason. We can read about Jesus coming to earth in the middle of the summer and it still should bring a level of excitement to our hearts that Christ came for us. It is centered on this gospel message. After his initial introduction to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul begins with thanksgiving to God for the saving benefits bestowed upon them. And through verse 2 through verse 5, he talks about their examples and how he thanks God for their lives and for the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He also mentions there are sure evidences of the good success of the gospel, meaning the effects of the gospel on one's life, which was notorious and famous in several of his writings. While writing to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul tells some of the wonderful things and the characteristics of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does and what happens to it when it is preached or shared around the world, the effects, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is this good gospel or good news what is this good preaching Paul is talking about well I quickly want to hit a few of them for you the first thing I want to talk to you about is it's a powerful gospel the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful in fact there are many books that have been written many of them that have been considered literary works of art many of them that people today still call them literary classics the Iliad the Odyssey, the writings of Aristotle, the writings of, of, of you know, uh, all of the Greek philosophers, and Plato, and all of the different guys that wrote these words of wisdom. We, we'll, we'll read things, uh, Shakespearean uh, plays, and Romeo's and Juliet's, or the Tamings of the Shrew, or, or things of that nature. And we, we call them literary classics, the works, the literary works. These, these are classic literature. These are things that have withstood the test of time. They have been vetted. They've been combed over. They have been, if you will, debated. They have been under the scrutiny of men. And over time, people still have come to the realization that these are sacred texts and sacred works of art. Can I tell you, greater than anything, the Iliad and the Odyssey, greater than anything William Shakespeare ever wrote or Aristotle or Plato or any of those guys, the greatest literary work that has stood the test of time, that has been vetted more, that has been critiqued more, that has been uh, criticized more, that has been, if you will, ostracized the most is God's Word. And it still remains the same. You've had people try to disprove it. You've had people try to discredit it. You've had people try to disown it. 
You've had people do everything they can to defame and test, desecrate the words of Scripture, and yet it still comes out on top every time, no matter how hard they try. It always remains the same. Jesus made this statement that my word, or that he would be, he would remain the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he said, not one dot, not one tittle, meaning not one inclination, not one punctuation mark, not one, not one letter of the law, not one letter of his word. None of it would pass away without accomplishing a task. Doesn't matter how hard you try. Doesn't matter how hard you try to disprove it, discredit it, or dislike it. The word of God remains the same. It doesn't change. It doesn't change to fit my narrative. It doesn't change to fit your narrative. It doesn't change for the way I want it to be for one day. And it doesn't allow it to change for me to have it look a different way the next day. It remains the same. I, it is not supposed to mirror what I want it to be. I'm supposed to mirror what it says I ought to be. There's a difference. Too many people live in a day and an hour in a society where they want the word of God to match their life. That have their lives match the word of God. There is a difference. People all the time will flip through the scriptures and be like, well, I'm sure I can find a scripture in somewhere that kind of validates what I'm doing. Well, I'm sure, you know, well, did God really say that? Well, he, if he didn't really say that, that, that probably, you know, maybe, maybe it's just something that's just you know, understood but, but not necessary. People all the time try to make the word of God fit their mold rather than being willing to let their lives be changed by the power of this word. The reality of it is the gospel doesn't change. Whether we like that or not, the gospel doesn't change. In verse 5, he says that our, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. What the Apostle Paul is saying is God's word is powerful. It is absolutely dynamite. It is demonstrated by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it effective. It is not just a factual book or a factual word, but it's an effective word. It is not just a document on some parchment paper of, of, uh, or a sacred scroll, but it is a dynamic, dynamite word straight from the throne room of heaven. This divine new, if this, 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 if you will, sacred text, must also be decreed and declared with dynamic and dynamite power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in preaching. See, too many people, they don't realize it, but they discredit the power of God's word by the way they speak. See, we, we talk about it all the time. You hear people all the time say things like, well, I know God can heal. You know, I know he can, but I don't know, I don't know if, you know, this, this one's, this one's pretty tough. This one's, this is a big one. They're, they're limiting the effectiveness of God's word. God's word did not say, the chastisement of peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes I am made whole or I am healed only when it's an easy situation. That's not what it says. It says, by his stripes I can be made whole or I can be healed, period. It doesn't say whether it's small or large. It says, by his stripes, I can claim healing. In the church of God, we have what we call the, the, the tenets of faith or what we call the declarations of faith and the 14 articles of those that surmise. And one of them that we 
still believe in in the church of God and and you don't necessarily hear a lot of preaching on it anymore, but that you that people actually probably need to be reminded of is that we still are a movement, yes, Pentecostal, but we still are a movement that believes in the divine, if you will, healing and the atonement healing of the power of Jesus Christ. We believe that you can call on the elders of the church, have them pray the prayer of faith for the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men and women availeth much. We still believe that when you lay hands on something symbolically and you pray the prayer of faith, if God in His providential mercy and grace and in His will sows desires to do so. God doesn't need a doctor to fix it. He may use a doctor, but He doesn't need a doctor. He doesn't need a psychologist. He doesn't need a psychiatrist. He doesn't need a, 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 a hematologist. He doesn't need a cardiologist. He doesn't need an oncologist. When God wants to step into the scene, if God wants to take care of it, we still believe the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men and women availeth much, and God is still in the miracle-working business that he can heal anytime, any place, anywhere without anybody's help. We believe that. But we don't always live that way. Now I'm not telling you never go to the doctor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you if you get a bad diagnosis that you should just mark it off and go, well, God will heal me. I'm not worried about it. I'm not telling you to be foolish. What I am telling you is whether God uses the modern marvels of medicine are made by man, or he does it supernaturally in an altar somewhere, it is still God that brought about your healing all in the same. Because it was God who put brains in the brain capacity in the person who developed the drug that helped you overcome whatever it may be, or the chemo, or the radiation, or whatever. If you beat cancer, but you had to take chemo and radiation and all that stuff, while you may have had a good doctor, that doctor had to have a brain, and the only person that knows how to make that brain work is God. So in and of itself, God still healed you. He just used a different method. It still was God who done it. The reality of it is everything we have in this life, we owe it to God. The car you drive doesn't belong to you. You may make payments on it, but if God didn't give you a job, you wouldn't have money to make the payments on the car. So really, it still belongs to God. The money in your bank account, yes, you got that because you worked hard at your job, but in and of itself, if God didn't give you the mental faculties and capabilities to work that job, you wouldn't have money. So in essence, it still belonged to God. Everything we have, we owe to God. And God's Word is powerful. It's dynamic. It does things that nothing else can do. You can be going through the most difficult of days. All, if you will, the old proverbial line, all hell could be coming against you. At the end of the day, you can sometimes open up this book. And you may not even know what you're looking for. You just don't know what else to look for. So you grab it because you don't have nothing else to look for. And you don't know what to do. Sometimes you'll flip through this book and not even know what you're searching for. But the Bible says that when you don't know what to pray, in that same self-hour, the Holy Spirit with utterance and groanings will pray on your behalf for you. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit will be a revelator and a teacher and He will remind you of the things which over the course of time 
you have committed to memory or you've committed to your heart. That's why the psalmist David said, your word will I hide in my heart that I may not sin against you. Because some days your brain may not work the way you want it to. And you may not can remember what you need to remember. But in that same self hour, the Holy Spirit can walk into the room and say, but don't you remember what the word said? And you go, I don't even know where that came from. I don't even know. I wasn't even thinking about that scripture. I wasn't even thinking about that moment. That's not you thinking. That's the Holy Spirit thinking on your behalf. I can't tell you how many times in life I've heard people say, and it's happened to me as well, but I've heard other folks say, I was doing such and such, I was reading such and such, I wasn't even thinking about it, but all of a sudden just something just boom came into my mind. I don't even know where it came from. Not even sure it's God in that moment, but it was like I know I wasn't even thinking about it, but in that moment it just happened. Sometimes those and it just happened moments was God giving those, you, those just happened moments. I can't tell you how many times even in my own life I didn't know what I was looking for. I just opened the Bible and I did the old proverbial. I can't tell you how many times as cheesy as it sounds when the finger landed on the place it was, it was dead on for the moment. The moment. It's like God directed my finger. I, I was just I wasn't even Brother James didn't even know what I was looking for but I just happened to open it up and there it was right in front of me. Now, I don't advocate that that's how you should do your Bible study because I will tell you sometimes you'll flip through and you'll point to that scripture and you hope that it wasn't God who put your finger there because it won't make sense. You'll be asking God for a miracle and you'll be asking God for a breakthrough and you'll be flipping through the Bible and it, you'll hit your finger and it'll say, and that night he died. That's not what you wanted to hear. That's not God's word for your life. You know? You're asking God for a divine breakthrough and you're flipping through and you hit your finger and you put it down and it goes John eleven thirty five and you go, oh, let's read that. And it says Jesus wept. That's not what you wanted to hear when you're struggling, that Jesus is crying too. Not what you're after, right? It, I wouldn't advocate you mimic your Bible study on that capacity level. What I'm saying is there are sometimes God knows you don't know what you're looking for, but he knows what you're looking for. And his word is so powerful that even though you may not make, it may not make sense to you, his word can do life-changing things in your life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul continued to say in 1 Corinthians 2 and 4. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. What he was saying is, it ain't me that's got it all together. I'm not that good. The Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, I'm not that good at this. It's not my words. Everybody says, oh, Pastor Paul is just a phenomenal preacher of the gospel. He could just preach. And Paul said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm not that good. It's not me at all. It's the power of the gospel that you're hearing. And you are connecting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not because I'm a good communicator. It's that God's word is effective. It's good. That's what you hear. He wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 1 and 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. He tells the church at Rome, the gospel will save you. It's powerful. Acts 1 and 8. Jesus has promised them the Holy Spirit. And he said, you'll be endued with power from on high. You know, that with the Holy Ghost comes upon you to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the other ones. You know all the scriptures. But think about it. It's still the power of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit. Look at what the Apostle Paul said again in 1 Thessalonians. Jesus told him in Acts, tarry until you be endued with power from the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul said that it is the gospel is in power and in the Holy Spirit. They all work together. That word power in the book of Acts comes from the word dunamis or dynamite. We get our word dynamite, dynamic. The Holy Spirit is dynamic. He's dynamite. There was a story told one time of a young couple who took their son, 11-year-old son, and their 7-year-old daughter to Carlsbad Caverns. As they were making their way on the tour, they reached the darkest point of the cavern. The guide immediately said, okay, we're going to turn all the lights. And he shut all the lights to dramatize how completely dark and silent it is below the earth's surface. It was eerily quiet. Just the faint hearing of some trickle water in the distance. But it was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was pitch black dark. Immediately, the little girl that was with her family suddenly enveloped in utter darkness, was frightened and began to cry. Her brother, standing beside her, grabbed her by the hand and said, Don't worry, sis. There is somebody in here who knows how to turn the lights back on. In a real sense, that's what the gospel is all about. We understand that Jesus Christ, His light is available and even when the darkness of this world seems overwhelming, we have to remember there is someone who knows how to turn the light back on. That's what Jesus does. This world is dark. But we have to remember Jesus knows where the light switch is. He is the light of all lights. Heaven doesn't need electricity because Jesus is the light of that city. But Jesus said, until I come back, you are the light of the world a city set on a hill he told us to shine bright and be lights in darkness see this world is in utter darkness spiritually emotionally metaphorically we have to be the people that knows where the light switch is at and how to turn the lights on to those walking in darkness the gospel is so powerful it can turn the light on it can illuminate your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The gospel is illuminating in our lives. You see, the Bible, we understand, is a work of mankind. And we know that some would argue, well, if it was written by men, there could be human error involved in that. And people can debate that and amend that should they desire. But the reality of it is, this is not men's words. These are God's words pinned down by man. While it is true that God revealed himself in Christ as the living word, there is the reality, though, that he still wants to make himself known to us today in our hearts. You see, we must preach, we must teach, we must sing with boldness and be anointed by the Spirit of God. Not only is God's word powerful, but number two, God's word, the gospel, is resounding. It's resounding. It's a sound. It is that word sounded out, or that word comes from a Greek word where we get our word echo. 
the Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, if you will, they were echoing what Paul had already taught them. Paul had given them the rubric to how to live. What Paul said is that after I left, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. That word means echoed. What he is saying is, we taught it to you, but instead of you just sitting on it, you went and let it be like an echo, like a reverb. It just kept carrying and carrying. He was giving the analogy of someone standing on the top of a mountain and yodeling and, and crying out, you know, hello, 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 hello. And how the word just kept carrying over the tops of the mountains. What he was saying is, that's what the church at, Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica had done. The Apostle Paul had told them the good news, but the word kept going and going and going until it had reached the uttermost parts. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus called us to do, to go therefore in the uttermost parts of the world and keep telling the story so the sound keeps echoing so that people in other countries and people in other states and people in other places that don't know Jesus hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We carry the gospel. Before we had electric, electronic amplification, speakers used to employ a sounding board directly behind a podium to project voices in larger auditoriums. Before we had these cool gadgets. When someone had to speak at a large gathering, they didn't have microphones. So what they did is they placed what they called a soundboard or a sounding board behind the podium. And the goal was that the sound would bounce off. And the, the, the waves, if you will, the sound waves would, re, would reverb and, and all throughout the room. And reverberate off the walls and off the board. and So the people in the back could hear me. Can you hear me in the back? They could hear without the microphone. Now some folks have a natural uncanny ability to have voice projection. They don't need that. There are some people I have met, they could stand in... Probably a, a room of 10,000 people and say, hey, can you hear me in the back? And somebody's going to hear me in the back. They, they just have that kind of carry. There's some people that are a little more mild, a little more meek, if you will, in their voice, a little bit softer in voice. Even if they tried to have a voice that carried, it wouldn't carry that far. It would be much softer and gentler. See, the reality of it is we cannot just tell one person the gospel. Our job is to make sure it echoes throughout all the land, echoes throughout all that we come in contact with. It must reverb all around. Fritz Kreisler was a world-famous violinist. He earned a fortune by playing concerts and compositions, and he was well compensated. Most of the money he made, though, he would generously give away. He didn't live off of that mass amount of money. One day he discovered a quite exquisite violin on one of his touring trips, but he wasn't able to purchase it. It was too expensive. Later, after raising enough money to meet the asking price of said violin, he returned to the seller, hoping to purchase this beautiful instrument. But to his great dismay, it had been sold to a collector nearby. The collector was found, Mr. Keisler found the address of this collector. So he made his way to this collector's, if you will, home. 
and he offered to buy it off of the collector. Of course, the collector said that this had become his prized possession. It was quite expensive, and he would not sell it. There was no amount of money that could purchase this exquisite violin. Visibly and keenly disappointed, Mr. Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. He turned to the collector and he said, Would you mind if I played the instrument one time before it is confined to its eternal resting place of silence forever? What he was asking is, Can I play it one more time to hear the sound of this this exquisite instrument before you put it on a shelf for a display case? No one ever hears the sound of this again. Reluctantly, but somewhat optimistically, the collector gave his permission. The virtuoso violinist grabbed it, began to check the fret, the bow, began to check and make sure all the strings were tightened. He immediately put bow to string, and he filled the room with such heart-moving music that the emotions of the collect the collector's emotions were deeply moved. By the end of the song, the collector was had tears streaming down his face, and he looked at Mr. Kaiser and he said, "I have no right to keep something of such beauty to myself. It's yours. Take it. Don't offer me anything. I don't want any payment for it. Let the world hear it." Because it would be a shame to keep it here and no one to hear its sound played ever again. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us the most exquisite gift we could ever ask for. The gift of salvation. The gift of hope. You know, we, we talk about the Advent season and we last year we preached to the Advent season. One of those Advent moments or themes is that of hope. Jesus gave us hope, joy, peace, love. Jesus gave us the greatest of all gift, himself. It would be a shame for us to keep that to ourselves and put him on a mantle of display, but never let the world hear the exquisite gospel of Jesus Christ. See, if that violin would have stayed on the shelf, no one would have ever heard its melodious sonnet played again. How the world may have felt and heard different music. How there would have been, if you will, that great proverbial letdown. Such a waste of a good instrument sitting on a desk somewhere collecting dust. No one to hear its sound ever again. How often is it that people like us have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most beautiful gift of all. But because of our lack of willingness to share, this world doesn't hear the hope of Jesus. They don't hear the songs of praise. They don't hear the, the echoing sounds of God's love covers a multitudes of sin. They don't hear the melodious sonnet of, on Christ the solid rock I stand on other ground is sinking sin. We cannot keep such great gifts to ourselves it must be echoed far and wide it should never be kept to ourselves it should be shared to all who hear in fact when the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 they begin to over the course of time later you'll find after chapter 2 and chapter 4 
the book of Acts, they began to be persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were actually told by the religious elitists of the day, shut up, quit preaching. We don't want to hear it. We're tired of it. We don't want to hear about this Jesus. We don't want to hear about this propagandized gospel. We ain't listening to it. Just keep your mouth shut. The apostles at that time were put in a little bit of a quandary. They had a choice to make. They had two choices, really. One choice was to obey the laws of man. Listen to what they said. You know, be, be willing to accept the fact that that's what the leader said, so we're not going to do it. But at that same token, if they did that, they could risk the disapproval of God. They also had the secondary choice of gaining the approval of God by sharing the gospel, but at the cost of offending and enraging man putting their lives in jeopardy, putting their families in jeopardy, putting them in prison, having beat, been beaten and martyred, and putting them their life, if you will, on the line for this gospel. Brother James, when they were poised with such the dichotomy of what choice to make, they went to prayer. Acts, I read it to you this morning in Acts chapter 4, they began to pray, Oh God, you're great and you're wonderful and you're majestic. By Acts, by the, by Acts chapter 4 verse 31, when they finished praying and said amen, the place where they were shaken, the place where they gathered was shaken by the presence of God. When they left that building, they never stopped talking about Jesus. Oh yeah, Peter went to jail, busted out of jail. He got out of jail and showed up at the church house and told everybody he was out of jail. You know what he did the next day? He went and preached Jesus again. Just getting out of prison. Went back to doing the same thing that got him put in prison. People like James and others were brutally murdered and martyred. And even when they were given a chance to denounce them, denounce God for the sake of their lives. If you look, read Fox's Book of Martyrs or you read any of the historical accounts of the martyrs of the early church Apostles, they all were presented the opportunity to denounce their faith. If you denounce it, if you stop talking about it, we'll let you live. And you know what they couldn't do? Couldn't do it. They already prayed about it. They already had had a resolution, a resolve in their heart. They knew what this writer Jeremiah was saying when he penned, it's like his word is like a fire. Even when I didn't want to talk about it, his word was like a fire shut up in my bone and I could not I could not scarcely contain it. They knew even if I tried to not speak his name, even if I didn't want to, I can't help myself because he's been so good. And they kept preaching the gospel. But at what cost? Some were flayed alive. Some were crucified upside down. Some were dismembered, literally limb by limb, to inflict the most excruciating of pain before they were denounced. And some were boiled. Some were feathered and tarred, if you will, like you would an animal. They were done like that as humans. Things that would absolutely make your head spin of the grotesque acts. But you know what they still did in the midst of the trial, even in their last bleeding breath, even when their pain is excruciating, they still preached Jesus at all costs. That's resounding. That's echoing. The third thing, though, the gospel is not only powerful it's not only resounding but it's also liberating can I tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ will set you free it'll change your life the, 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 the writer the prophet Isaiah said this that Jesus was going to come the Messiah would come to proclaim liberty and to set the captive free preach the good and Jesus when he went into the temple 
he read that passage when he went to the temple that day and they, he asked for a scroll to be read. He could have read anything. He could have read the Ten Commandments. He could have read the books of the Law of Moses. He could have read anything of his choosing of the gospel. I mean of the, of the early uh, writings of the Torah. He could have read anything. One thing he chose to read. I've come to proclaim liberty. I've come to set captives free. I've come to heal broken hearts. I've come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He preached that he was there to change lives. To change the narrative. To change the story. When you look at the word turned around or the word turned. That word, literally, if you look at verse number 9 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, For they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the one true living God. When you look up that word turned in the Greek, it means to be converted or to make a 180, a turnaround. You go in the opposite direction of where you were headed. That's what the gospel does. I may be walking this way, but the gospel helps me get back on the right path, on the right road. It's a GPS of sorts. It's a navigation of my life. You see, when people turn to God, miraculous change takes place. Instead of being self-serving, they begin to serve God and ultimately others. We may not physically bow down to idols like the Greeks and the Romans did in this writing. And Paul's writing that we turned you away from idols to God. Yes, he's talking about graven images and wooden statues. We may not bow down to a little voodoo doll or Buddha doll or, or some kind of graven image like they did. But there are many people in this world that still are idolatrous in their ways. What do you mean? They just have traded the little figurine idol for other idols instead. Some of those idols can be materialism, hedonism, which literally means the, self, the quest for self-gratification. That's what hedonism means. Humanism, the idea of putting man in place of God. Abuse of power, sex, drugs, alcohol, money, sports. There's a lot of things that people will put before God. And the reality of it is, an idol does not have to be a carven wooden statue overlaid with gold sitting on a mantle. An idol is simply this. Anything that is before God has become your idol. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You know the Ten Commandments. I have no other gods before me. Don't make unto me any graven image. Anything... God said, you shall have no other gods before me. He didn't say they all had to be wooden statues. The point is, anything that oversees or oversteps God in your life becomes your idols, becomes your God. When money is more important than God, your relationship with God, when fame and fortune and and, and the quest for gratification and, and the putting of yourself in place of God. Anything that supersedes God becomes the idol. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking to this church. He said, we were able to get you to see that God has to be first and everything else becomes secondary. They began to imitate the life of the Apostle Paul. 
The final thing, Ms. Carol, as you make your way, the final thing in verse 10, the Apostle Paul reveals that not only is the Word of God powerful in verse 5, not only is the Word of God resounding, verse 8, not only is the Word of God liberating in verse 9, but in verse number 10 he tells us that God, the gospel, the good news is a gospel of hope. It's a hopeful gospel. Look at what he said. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is he telling them? He was, he was telling them, we still have a hope that Jesus will come back again. We live in a day and an hour where there are many people who their lives feel hopeless. Their lives feel like they have no meaning. As a resort, many people make foolish decisions that can oftentimes lead to loss of life, depression, life-altering habits, and hang-ups that mess up their life further than they ever thought possible. It's not just elderly, it's not just shut-ins, it's not just criminals that have those problems, but a vast number of young people make decisions like that. We have taught in school systems how we have all evolved from animals, and yet in some respects, because we've heard that, people have started living like animals, barbaric in nature. The reason Christianity was so powerful in the first three centuries stemmed from the people within the Roman Empire losing all faith in their pagan gods. They had prayed and altered their pagan idol, idols and, 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 and done all these things. And Brother Larry, they felt like nothing was happening and they were getting sad and depressed and feeling like they were being let down. So this new gospel... A God who hears when we pray. This new gospel of a God who is there at the mention of His name resonated in their heart. First three centuries of the early church people were gravitated to this gospel. You see, they were at a place of hopelessness. They felt like all was hope was lost. Some of them took their own lives. Yet the gospel offered them an alternative called hope. It offered them eternal life. The resurrection of Christ had brought about a real demonstration of a true life after death experience. A real person had done it. Yes, he was God's son, but a real person had died. Didn't stay dead. The hope of glory and the promise of a return excited their hearts. Paul reminded them that they had not only turned to God from idols, but they had began to live a life of hope because Christ would come again. Throughout 1 Thessalonians, he would write things about conduct, brotherly love. He would write things about people who had passed away, and he'd say, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those that are asleep, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We'll, we'll have this resurrected glory. He told them the promise to come. These people had lived in despair for years. They had something glorious awaiting. They had suffered persecution. 
people today still suffer persecution. They had suffered affliction. Some in throughout other countries, especially, suffer affliction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there was still a great joy in the Holy, knowing that the Holy Spirit and the hope of Christ's coming was imminent. They had a sense of guilt based on their sinful nature. But this gospel, this good news, reminded them that we don't have to face God's wrath because provision had already been made through the atoning power and blood of Jesus Christ. He took my place. He took your place. God has always had a plan. He's always had good news for them that come to Him. The prophet Isaiah, in a very dark time in Israeli history, delivered this message straight from God. He said this in Isaiah 52 and verse 7. One of the darkest times in Israeli history, Isaiah proclaimed these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who proclaims peace. Who brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigneth. Listen, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. God's had a plan. In Romans chapter 10, verse 15, the Apostle Paul reiterated that. He said this, how shall they preach unless those folks are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Well, the Apostle Paul said is, if we don't preach it, how are they going to know? Somebody has to do it. George Owen once said this, the world has many religions, but there is only one gospel. Let it be shouted from the mountaintop so that all the world can hear there is no other way than Jesus. That's the hope of the church. You can have 5,000 religions, but there's only one gospel of Jesus Christ. I am the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. That's good gospel preaching. I'm not talking about somebody who snorts and spits and hollers and screams and throws handkerchiefs. The good gospel preaching is Jesus is still the reason. He's still alive. He's still the reason we celebrate. He's the reason we're here. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he is soon to come again. The good news is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand all over the house tonight. We're going to go to prayer and then we'll have our prayer benediction. After this prayer, I'll make a few quick announcements before we have the closing prayer and be dismissed. Let me pray for you tonight. Eternal Father, I have done my best to preach your word to your people. Father, I pray that some message that was given tonight would have been encouraging 
someone in this house. I pray, God, that you would help us to realize the good news is that Jesus is still alive and well. He's still the reason. He is the good news. We should celebrate that, the eternal hope of glory. Father, this week will be filled with a busy schedule for many folks in this house. But God, I pray today you let this be a week of favor and blessing. Father, may you bless us and keep us. May you make your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance towards us. Give us a peace of God that surpasses all human understanding and guard our hearts until you come again. And let the word of our mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. The people of God together said amen. And then before we have the benedictory prayer, don't forget next Sunday morning, uh, regular service, but don't forget next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, so that'll be Missions Sunday where we take an offering at the end of church. The ushers will be at the back door. Whatever we collect, we put in a big pot. We send off to World Missions to help make a difference, so don't forget that next Sunday will be Mission Sunday. Also next Sunday night is our Christmas party at 5 p.m. in the back. Don't forget to bring your favorite Christmas delicacies, whether it's desserts, cookies, pies, uh, punch, little smokies, sandwiches, whatever, holiday treats. We'll have just a holiday festivity. Uh, Brother Primo, red rice is considered a holiday treat, so you don't have to, you don't have to change yours. That, that is a holiday food. Uh, I don't want you to get messed up. Well, Brianna will have peanut butter balls for Miss Brenda. Brother Primo can have red rice for the preacher. So, you know, we'll, we'll work through this thing together, okay? The rest of you bring whatever you want. But that's that. Those things are set. But, but um, make sure if you're playing the gift exchange, make sure you bring those already wrapped. Doesn't have to be super expensive. Somewhere between 5 to $10 gift. You can put it in a gift bag or you can wrap it. Either way, if you want your kids to play, they are 12 and under and you want them to play they'll play a kid version of that so make sure you buy kid friendly you know don't buy them you know like a furry blanket with you know acorns on it or something that you know you know buy them coloring books or trinkets or something you can do a you can do a gift card to somewhere and wrap it in a big box and let them open this big box and find one gift card inside they'll be just as thrilled you you can make this fun and exciting if you want them to play as well but make sure you remember that as well also uh, remember that uh, next Sunday morning the new calendars will be on the Welcome Center and Connection Center area so you'll know what's going on throughout the month. There'll be a lot of things that won't happen through the month because there's a lot of things happening through the month because there's going to be a lot of moving parts. So so there'll be some things our schedule-wise look a little different, but we will be back on schedule this week for Nehemiah Prayer on Wednesday at uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, so we'll have Nehemiah Prayer. If you can make it, join us. If you can't, pray at home. If you can't, come at 536 o'clock that night the doors will be back open if you can't find some time this week to pray um, but we want to see uh, God do some great things if you are walking the fasting journal with us you should be in the next two chapters so we should be trajecting towards uh, seven and eight this week we should be moving along towards chapter seven and eight in the fasting book uh, if you're with us fasting by pastor Jensen Franklin you will be in chapter seven and eight to get us ready for January, for sacred season, where we will go on a 21-day journey of, of seeking the Lord and for our church, for our families, our communities, and all of the above. It's been a great day, a blessed day. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Mike King to close us out in prayer tonight. Immediately following that, shake hands, be friendly, and uh, we'll see you on Wednesday night. Brother Mike, would you pray?